folks. Hope you're doing well. This is an obviously a very exciting day, a big day for you all as a church, a big day for us as a family. We have been praying for you, and I trust that you have been praying for us as well. Uh, we have two great responsibilities before us this morning, uh, us as a family, you as a, as a congregation, and uh, making some final determinations about our future in ministry and your future as a congregation, uh, but the greater responsibility in the time that we have together this morning to ensure that we are hearing from God's Word, that we are responding appropriately to what God reveals of Himself, that He might be worshipped here today in spirit and in truth. So I'm going to do the best that I can to sort of suppress the anxiety that's natural to this day and just preach. And I want to encourage you to sort of suppress the inclination toward judgment and just listen. How about that? I want to invite you this morning, if you would, to turn to the book of Isaiah and chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a passage that will be familiar to uh, many of you, I suspect, and one that speaks beautifully to the glory and the holiness of our God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, Let's stand together as we read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 13. Here the Bible says, beginning in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. And I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when failed. The holy seed is the stump. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Isaiah 6 is introduced by this historical marker, the kind of thing that we might gloss over in our daily devotional reading or just reading quickly through chapters or books of the Bible. The first phrase simply says, in the year that King Uzziah died. 
the framework, the historical framework that that provides for us lends a great deal of emphasis to what Isaiah says in the next 13 verses. We're not accustomed to having longevity in leadership in terms of government here in America. We get a new president, a new leader every four or eight years, in recent history every eight years. Every eight years it turns over. In fact, every two years a new presidential campaign begins, but that's another story. We, we are accustomed to turnover at the top. But when you live under a king, that is often not the case. There can be periods of unrest and great turnover, but that was not the case at all in the case of Uzziah. In fact, Uzziah was the king of Judah for 52 full years. If you had been born as Uzziah was coming in as king, you, you could have gone to school and graduated college and graduated, married, you could have graduated your children and, and even begun to have grandchildren all within the time frame of Uzziah's leadership. He provided tremendous stability for the nation of, of Judah. In addition to, to the length of time that Uzziah served, he was one of only a handful of good kings who ever ruled over the nation of Judah. So not only were they saddened at what the future held, but there, there is some despair that a good king has died, and you never really know what to expect out of the next king. Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was a pretty good king, but Ahaz and Manasseh were coming down the pike. Things would turn drastically for the nation of Judah in the years to come. Uzziah had been a positive spiritual influence in the nation. The military of Judah had been strong. There had been safety and a sense of security in the land. It was a period of relative financial prosperity. All was well for the nation of Judah. Now all was uncertain with his death. What Isaiah is saying here is that in a season of uncertainty, when, when there was real concern about what the future held for the people of God, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. When every earthly throne is vacant, God is on the throne of heaven. Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God on the throne. We didn't know about who was going to be on the throne of Judah. There was some confusion about that, uncertainty about what the future held. But God was firmly situated on the throne of heaven. I saw him high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I think sometimes this is overlooked, but, but Isaiah is here in the temple, perhaps fulfilling some priestly responsibility, perhaps in some ways serving in the capacity of a prophet, although that may not be as likely. This seems to be the beginning of his ministry. He's in the temple in any, in any case. And, he, and he's there worshiping, involving himself in the work of ministry or worship, however it is that Isaiah was handling his business. And at once in a vision, it is as though the ceiling, the roof of the room is rolled back, and there is God high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple complex. There is God in all of his glory, his robe furling down into the temple complex, so much so that the temple is filled with this robe of glory. We don't, we don't know kings much in America but we do know something about the way the robe functions to draw attention to the wearer. We know this from the wedding ceremony. The sweetest, sometimes the most emotional part of a wedding service, a wedding ceremony, 
is, is the moment in time, and I, I have the best view of this, officiating weddings with the groom to one side and his best man there and uh, all of the bridal party gathered at the front of the chapel and then at once the doors open and there she stands. Beautiful bride with a dress that daddy paid way more than he ever hoped to pay for a dress for. And she begins her march to Canon and Dee. Dress flowing behind her, the train of her dress sweeping down the aisle. And when she takes her place there to my right, standing just across from her groom-to-be, bridesmaids have been given the assignment of making certain that the train of her dress is fixed just so. Just so the photographer, who's being paid way more than Daddy ever hoped to pay him, can capture the glory of the train of, of her dress. And so it is with God that His robe of glory is intended to draw our attention not so much to the robe itself, but to the God of great glory. Isaiah's eyes are turned upward at this robe of glory, looking now upon the God of, of great glory. God is glorious, isn't He? In the year that King Uzziah died, the Bible says Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up with his train, the robe of glory, furling down into the temple complex. He is a God of great glory. Above the throne, there were seraphim. The language there simply means they were burning ones. They're angelic figures, but they're a certain kind of angel. They are the burning angels, the seraphim. I take that to be an indication that the name they have been assigned describes their appearance. It is as though you have angels that have been doused with gasoline, lit ablaze, and they are flying about the throne room of God. Interestingly enough, they don't seem to distract Isaiah from the bright radiance of the glory of God. If we were to light angels and fly them about the auditorium this morning, there would be little attention left fixed on the sermon, I can assure you. And here Isaiah seems to be so captivated at what he sees in God, even burning angels cannot cause him to turn his gaze away. The burning angels have been uniquely adapted for living in proximity to God. They have six wings, the Bible says. Two are used for flying. They seem to be in a, in a flying position, standing, but flying above the throne of God. Two of their wings are used to cover their feet. This seems to be an expression of modesty. Their lowest or most creaturely parts are being covered by two of their wings. And with two of their wings, they, they shield their face, which is really an astonishing thing, isn't it? It, it? It's not surprising that we would need to shield our face from the brightness of God's glory. But here we have creatures who have been created by God to live in the presence of God, and they shield their face for the brightness of His glory. Think about that. In the same way that, that, that birds have been fashioned to live in the air, light bone structures, feathers, all of the things necessary, fish have been created by God to live in a watery environment. So these angels have been uniquely equipped to live in the presence of God. And even with all of their adaptation, it is insufficient to gaze upon the glory of our God. We serve a remarkable God. 
The angels are there flying about the throne room, and the Bible says that, that they're singing. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And there seems to be an indication here that there's a sing-song effect. There's a host of angels, and from one side of the chamber, there is a shout, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. From the other side of the throne room, the angelic choir echoes back, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. He is holy, holy, holy. In the same way that we don't have good points of reference for understanding kingship in our culture, I'm not sure that anywhere in the world we have good points of reference for understanding holiness when it comes to the holiness of our God. You are perhaps accustomed to, to repetition for emphasis in the Bible. Often the Bible will say that the word will be listed twice rather than saying something happened in, in an impressive fashion or with force. In the Bible, it, it will just say it twice. It will be back to back. Verily, verily, I say to you. Amen, amen, I say to you, Jesus would often say. But here, the holiness of God is stated not once, not twice, but three times. I, I can only think of one other place in the Old Testament. If you know of another, you can inform me after the service. But of only one other place in my mind that I can call up where there's a, 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 a three-time statement for emphasis. In Jeremiah 7, the people believe that they're safe from the judgment of God because they have the temple. The temple has become their good luck charm. And when Jeremiah preaches against them, the people say, the temple, the temple, the temple. We've got the temple. We're safe. It's the, it's the, the equivalent to the modern day statement, well, I go to church. I was baptized. I'm a member. The temple, the temple, the temple. And Isaiah lambasts them for their hypocrisy and their neglect of God's command. But here in a positive sense, the Bible says not that God is holy, not that he is merely holy, holy, but that God is holy, holy, holy. I don't, I don't, I don't know that, that we're capturing this just yet. Fr from time to time, I have had the pleasure of serving in different places, specifically with international missions. And I shared with the early service, everywhere I've ever been, on an international mission trip, a short-term trip specifically, I've always been used as bait. Let's bring the Americans and let's parade them through the village. And we look strange in comparison to those that were there serving. They usually have a lot to say about our size and weight, and rightfully so. And they sort of parade us through and we're the novelty. And people will come to just look at the Americans, you know. It's, it's apparent to them that we are in, in many ways different that we are not like them. In, in Mississippi, from time to time, it's, it's interesting to me when someone from up north makes their way down our way and the different accents. And you can see it happen. You, you've seen it happen here in your congregation. They walk into a group and they, and they say something and it's actually stated in proper English. <laughs> they walk away and we go, where are they from? What is up with this? It's apparent in a moment that there's, there's, a, there's a difference culturally and perhaps otherwise. When we talk about the holiness of God, in some sense, what we're saying is that God is not like us, and he is not from around here. 
He is altogether different from us in his holiness. It's, it's sometimes a frightening thing to me when I talk with people about Jesus. And the Jesus that they serve looks like them, talks like them, acts like them. He loves the people they love. He hates the people they hate. He shares all of their convictions. Their sensibilities are never offended when they read the Bible because it always reflects their positions. And in reality, the Jesus that they're worshiping is a Jesus who's been made over in their own image and not the Jesus of the Bible. Your sensibilities should be offended at times when you read the Bible. He is not from around here. And he is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is holy, holy, holy. And the angels sing with such force. that The Bible says in verse 4 that the foundations of the doorpost were shaken at their voice. This is not the voice of God that is booming down that causes the temple walls to tremble. This is the voice of his subservient angels crying, holy, 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 and the doorposts tremble at their voice. If you are between the ages of 35 and 45, you can remember from grade school the earthquake drill. Do you all remember that? Anybody remember that? It, it was the natural disaster that was supposed to kill us all that came right between acid rain and a hole in the ozone. We got, we got climate change now. But, but the, the, back in the day, Mississippi was going to float off into the Gulf of Mexico when this great cataclysmic earthquake came. And they would ring the bell a specific way, and when they rang the bell, you were to get in either one of two locations. You either got under your desk or you got in the doorway. Because the doorway was the sturdiest part of the structure. Isaiah says the voice of God's angels booms so loudly at the song of his three-time holiness that the sturdiest parts of the temple construct shake at the sound of their voice. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with God's great glory, isn't it? Isaiah sees the Lord in his position of authority, ruling over all creation. He sees the Lord in a robe of glory, and he sees God here as the object of angelic worship, and he is to be the object of our worship as well. Jesus said the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So something happens here. When Isaiah sees the Lord holy, 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 things begin to change drastically. His response is to state to God what he sees of himself in light of what he's now seen of God. He says here in verse 5, Woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, I'm broken, I'm undone, I'm in desperate need. Isaiah sees himself here in a state of ruin. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. The interesting thing about Isaiah is the first five chapters, Isaiah's been saying, woe is you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Woe is you. There's not a self-righteousness about that. He's, he's speaking as the Lord instructs. But here, it's, it's something he simply seems to be unable to resist, to say something of his own unrighteousness in light of God's great righteousness. Woe is me, 
I'm ruined. He says, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. When we talk about something not being clean in our culture, what we mean is it's dirty. But uncleanness in Hebrew context means ceremonially unclean. It means something that's happened in you, around you, in, in close proximity to you that has rendered you ceremonially unclean, unable to participate in temple worship for a prescribed period of time. Now think about where Isaiah is. He is in the temple complex. Now, presumably, Isaiah wouldn't have gone into the temple if he understood himself to be unclean. He had assessed himself as right, as clean, as holy in some sense. And now, in light of what he has encountered in God, his first statement is, God, I am unclean. In other words, God, I don't belong here. I am broken. So two different kinds of judgment going on in the heart of Isaiah. There's a judgment that happens before his life is interrupted by this vision of God's great holiness. And in, under those circumstances, he judges himself to be right. And then he meets God. And he says, oh, I've been so wrong. Oh, it's, it's an easy thing to identify the sin in someone else's life. Like the favorite thing of every preacher are those folks that always meet you and they say, I wish so-and-so would have been here for that message, brother. Oh, they needed to hear that. I know somebody needed to hear that word. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, when, when we get before God, this is, by the way, what preaching is supposed to be, to hold up something of the character of God before the people with the expectation that as we gaze upon God together, that that will have powerful and profound effect on the way we live our life. That we'll leave differently because we have encountered a three-time holy God. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm in a state of ruin, I'm unclean, I'm broken. God, I need you. God, I need you. God, I need you. The motivating factor for Isaiah in his confession of sin is what he sees of God. When we stand before God in judgment, it will not be the standard of our friends and neighbors by which we'll be, we will be judged, but the standard of God's own righteousness. There, there is a growing desensitivity to the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit with regards to sin in the church. This is kind of a hokey way of putting it, but I know of no better way to say it. I think that the church of Jesus Christ needs as much now as it ever has before a good, old-fashioned, Holy Ghost conviction of sin where we find ourselves on our face before a holy God confessing that we are ruined, that we are undone, that we are unclean, and only the grace of Jesus Christ can restore us to righteousness. There's sin in our life. There's sin in our life. I don't know if you know this about preachers, but we sin too. I struggle with that. And it's not, it's not about being legalistic or marking off boxes, but I genuinely want my life to bring honor to a holy God. Isaiah says, woe is me. Not, not only does he say, woe is me concerning his own sin, 
But he, he, says, he says, woe is us, these people. They've got problems too. I'm not alone in this business of uncleanness, of being undone, of being in a state of ruin. Not only does he see his own need for grace, he sees the need of those around him as well. His, his reason, his motivation is stated at the conclusion of verse 5. He says, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You won't see Jesus. You won't encounter the Lord without being deeply affected by that encounter. You, you, you won't be touched by the gospel and unchanged by that experience. In verse 6, the Bible says, One of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. The significance here is that the altar is the place where the burnt offering is made. A burnt offering that's made possible by the letting of sacrificial blood. It is as true now as it was then that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. As soon as Isaiah confesses his sin, appeal is an appeal is made to the place of sacrifice, to the place of bloodletting, to the place of offering. With tongs, a glowing coal taken, touched to the mouth of Isaiah, and the declaration is made, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. You sort of get lost in what's happening there if you're not familiar with how the temple operates with ceremony and how the sacrificial system worked. But the significance is this. As soon as Isaiah confesses his sin, God addresses his need. Aren't you glad that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness? There's no waiting period for us to get our act together. No paying of penance on our part, that it's by grace and grace alone that God grants mercy and forgiveness at our confession of sin. In verse 8, the Bible says, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. In verse 9, the Bible says, He replied, that is, God replied, Here's your mission. Go and say to these people, Keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Now, I'd like you to picture this conversation for just a moment, if you would. Just imagine me and the pastor search team sitting down together talking about the future of Longview Point Church. And I would say to the committee, how do you see the next several years at Longview Point? And they would say something like, well, you're going to preach, but they won't understand. They're going to look, but they won't perceive. Their minds are going to be dull, that is, they'll be dense. Their ears will be deafened. They'll be dull of heart, stiff-necked, difficult to deal with. And in a few years, you'll have one-tenth the number of people that you do today. I would have asked the same question that Isaiah asked in verse 11. How long? Until when, Lord, Isaiah says. And God says, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of the finer details of verses 9 through 13 here. The point in reading that is, is that you would make a mental note 
that contrary to the way we often think about these verses, this is not a call on Isaiah's life to go and, and tell the gospel. Now, the application in that area is right and appropriate, and it's a remarkable thing to be called upon to go and, and tell the gospel. But Isaiah's call, his commission, is not to go and share the good news. In fact, it is to go and share some pretty bad news. The future is not bright for Isaiah's ministry. And I think it's important that we understand that, 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 we, that we see something, that we understand something of what is motivating Isaiah in answering the call of God. Why would Isaiah submit to the will of God with, with such poor prospects for the future? Because it's, it's not about the prospect of success. It's not about future fruitfulness. It's not about widespread approval. Isaiah goes because God in his holiness is worthy of the worship and the praise of all people. Not even compassion can motivate us to that degree. Often we leverage guilt or compassion for lost people to encourage missions and evangelism. We talk of the lostness that's so prevalent in the world, and it is a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking thing to, th to think about all of that lostness. But I have found in my own experience that the thing that keeps me most faithful evangelistically and missionally is not a sense of guilt or even compassion. Maybe I'm broken somehow. But when my heart is hot and excited about the goodness of my God, there is no laboring through those encounters. It's, it's a bubbling over at what God has done so graciously in my life or what I've come to know of his remarkable character. It's easy to talk about those things. Baptists don't have trouble sharing the gospel because we don't know how. We have trouble sharing the gospel when we love other things more than we love Jesus. Here Isaiah walks away from an, an, an encounter with God that marks him, that moves him so deeply that he's willing to do whatever God would call him to do. Is that where you'd find yourself? Think of how Isaiah responds. He, he worships. We've, we've seen that. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, he says. He, he surrenders. He submits to God's will. Who, who, who shall we send? Who will go for us, Isaiah? And Isaiah says, Lord, I'll go. Before he even knows what God has called him to do, Isaiah says, sign me up. Because you are worthy of the worship and the praise of all people. Isaiah senses a deep sense of conviction he sees God, and he, and he cannot but see himself in ways that he had not before. Virtually everyone in the South regards themselves as good people. We're good, good old boys, good old girls. And along with that is, is the expectation, it seems, in our culture that, that everyone has a right to heaven. We just live a good and mostly moral life that looks better than what we see on the news. It's better than what we observe of larger cities, more sinful parts of the country or the world. And so surely God will look upon us with great favor. And brothers and sisters, I would say to you this morning that we have no right to heaven, but a privilege that we might enter into the company of our Savior through the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And the promise is as sure in our experience as it was in the experience of Isaiah. If you will this morning confess your sin, God is faithful and he is just 
to forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness, there must be a coming to terms with our own guilt, that we are undone, that we are broken, that we are in a state of ruin. God has loved us so much that he would send his son to take our place, that the one who knew no sin would become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That is an astounding thing, isn't it? That in spite of our ungodliness, that Christ would intervene in our life, that he would drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against us, that we might be called the righteousness of God. Isaiah's vision here presents us with the conflict that's only resolved through the gospel. The holiness of God and his love for his people matched with the ungodliness of this people upon whom God has set his affection. What will God now do to bridge this great chasm? The answer is found in his son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Look to him for grace. And for mercy, you'll only find it there.